it's funny how mentorship works because sometimes things seem like it's not a big deal to the to the mentor but to the mentee it means like everything and uh if there's any moment that really affected my career it was uh, i came in to the collins office when you were working there um and it was to meet brian and then i i met uh you and you were sitting in an eames chair it was the first eames chair that i ever saw in my life it was so cool and uh i just i remember like seeing the work of uh, at the time it was Spotify uh, and some other campaigns up on the blackboard and it was really kind of neat because I was out of I was out of college but I hadn't really seen like real work and I saw all this stuff and I and I I knew intuitively like what looked good I was like yeah I want to do more stuff like this but uh, from a work standpoint I wasn't even close from a, a, a skill set wise my knowledge of the software. I had so much more to learn. I remember very vividly, there's like a Chipotle, uh, Chipotle like right outside of that building. I remember just staring into the burrito and thinking like, oh my God, I have so much, I wanna work there so bad, but I have such an uphill thing here. And, and there's so much that I need to learn to be able to, you know, metaphorically compete at that level. Um, and it's taken a, a long time. And I remember one time actually I called you and had all these questions and kind of having yet another existential breakdown. I think when you first leave school that first year out, you're convinced you're going to be able to like will it into existence, but really it's just like hours logged, like uh, 10,000 hours kind of thing. And I remember when I called you, I had all this stuff and you just had the stoic advice and essentially the conversation was over. You were just like, follow your curiosity. It will never let you down. And I've heard you mention that before, um, but it's true. And I think that things really started to come to fruition for me as a designer when I was able to kind of just relax and similar to like how you're talking about just kind of going down these weird kind of like rabbit holes on like Pinterest and and then books and, and literature and stuff like that. Um, but I just wanted so badly to be able to create systems like that and to operate like that. But it almost, and tell me if this, this has been your experience, the more kind of like loose you are with things, the, the easier it gets. And then over time, you'll kind of learn industry best practices. But I just, it was, it's not something you can just like think up and do. It's something that you actually have to work towards, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's not, I can't transfer the knowledge to you how to ride a bike. Right. You just have to ride a bike and keep failing. Yeah. So until you don't. Mm -hmm. And writing a, so riding a bike is experiential knowledge. Right. It's tacit knowledge. And so much of design is tacit knowledge. I can teach you about technical aspects of design, but it won't make you a better designer. Right. The technical aspects of design are names that we give to things that we intuitively learn or tacitly learn through experiences. So one of the things that I tell designers early on who are trying to discover their voice and try to refine their craft is spend most of your time early on copying other designers, trying to replicate what they did so that you can see that what they made look easy is actually really hard and then sit with that frustration and that ambiguity and that struggle to understand why on earth what you just made doesn't look at all like <laughs> the thing that Herb Lubalin did. Yeah. Like you're, you're like, it's just, it's easy. It's like these curly things. And I just, I just bend the, you know, the anchors in, in, in Illustrator until I get it how I want. Like, how hard could that be? And then you try and you're like, oh my God, 
Yeah. Like mine looks like chicken scratch and I've been working on it for five days. Like you need to go through that. And the, the, the positive benefit that is, is that it trains your eye to see things that you wouldn't have uh, done before or, or noticed otherwise. It also allows you to kind of figure out what you like and what you don't like by looking at lots of stuff and trying to play with it. Um, and that, you know, that refines your eye, that refines your, your aesthetic sensibilities. Um, and all of this stuff seeps into your work later on in ways that you don't know, you can't understand and you can't pinpoint and, and, and enough seeps into it into your work one day until you're like really good at what you do. And again, yeah. going back to the bike example, one day you just start riding a bike and you're like, I, I don't know how I got to this point of riding a bike, but all of a sudden he's riding a bike. Like I, I taught my son, I have a now five-year-old son. And a few months ago when he was four, I was teaching him to ride a bike for the first time. And we literally just repetition did the same thing over and over and over and over again until he started riding his bike. And I mean, he, I know he's four, but to make my point, he couldn't tell you what was the difference between the ninth time he tried to ride his bike and fell and the 10th time he tried to ride his bike and stayed up. Yeah. And, and that's why just that repetition and just doing things over and over again on your own is so critical and exposing yourself to different styles is critical. And then eventually you, in a metaphorical sense, in a spiritual sense, will pop out and you'll discover yourself. Yeah, because I, I had these experiences where I would kind of just do that thing you're talking about, kind of like the copy and pasting, and I would learn how to make things kind of have that sort of look, but it never really um, worked out the way I wanted to because I never really took a deep dive and, and kind of took a chance, so to speak. And um, during COVID-19, there have not been as many job opportunities. Frankly, I've actually been kind of struggling to lock down a job. I'm also looking for more, more uh, full-time work, so that's kind of a, a different uh, avenue. But... Um, I was kind of forced to have too much time on my hands and I just took out these sketchbooks and I started really studying the work and I'd always liked it, but I never really tried my hand at it. And I got tracing paper and I got all like these different markers and stuff. And I tried to make um, like Seymour Quast-esque work. I tried to do Milton Glaser-esque work. And it was exactly the experience you're describing. I was so bad at it. And, I, and, and by looking at it, and, I, and to, the, to this day, I haven't really made anything yet that's like portfolio worthy, but I love the idea that one day I will be able to ride the proverbial bike. But I think it takes a level of humility in a sense. Like I had to humble myself and realize like you're not going to start the next Pushpin studio you're somebody who's in your fourth year of graphic design on the professional sense. And this is going to take a long time and I'm going to have to work on my craft and it's going to suck for a while, but it will come. And, and it was fun to kind of just not have that pressure of like building out this like website and having this like sellable thing. It was, it was sort of, it felt closer to like when I was a kid and I would just lay on the floor and draw. And that is critical, I think. So let me, let me tell you a story about Kurt Vonnegut. And this goes back to the point earlier about follow your curiosity. So mm -hmm. Kurt Vonnegut told this story. For anyone who doesn't know, Kurt Vonnegut was an author back in the 70s who wrote Slaughterhouse-Five. Maybe you probably read it in high school or college. You have to make point. me a list of all the cool shit to check out because <laughs> your references are all over the place. But I want to 
be uh, intellectually promiscuous, as you said before. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, Kurt Vonnegut told a story about how when he was a kid, he he did um, some day work with uh, archaeologists, like literally like digging up stuff and cleaning stuff. And um, he was talking, the archaeologist, you know, kind of asked him like passing the time questions, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. And um, Kurt would say, a young Kurt would say, you know, um, I'm in high school. I, you know, I love uh, playing the violin. I love, um, you know, painting this. I love, um, I love cooking or whatever. Um, but I'm not any good at any of the stuff. And um, the guy peeked up, peeked up, and said, you know, something to the effect of, "Oh, well, that's that's really interesting. I, I, you know, if you ever want to bring some of that stuff, I'd love to hear the violin or." see some of your drawings and stuff. And Kurt's like, no, 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 I, I'm, I'm not any good at it. it I just kind of do it. And the archaeologist uh, said something to the effect of like, look, here's, the, here's an important life lesson. You don't have to be good at something to do something. You can just enjoy doing it. Mm-hmm. And Kurt Vonnegut, as he was retelling the story that I'm totally trashing, unfortunately, <laughs> um, said something to the effect of that that moment and that piece of advice always stuck with him because it was the first time in his life someone had ever told him something like that. And those few words of you don't have to be good at something to do something completely transformed Kurt's perception of himself. Whereas before he was like this failure who, who tried to do all these things and just could never ever become any good at them all of a sudden he became a, uh, uh, an interesting person who had all these different interests that he was into. And I can't, I can't remember if he mentioned this or not, but I think he mentioned something about like curiosity. Like he just did it because it was curious to him. And now he has all these great experiences and stories and little um, bits of information that kind of like encompass him and make up who Kurt Vonnegut is. And he always said that that was a, a remarkable uh, yet simple transformation in how he thought about himself and what he did. And like, in, in many ways, I hear the exact same thing in what you're saying. Like mm-hmm. you shouldn't be measuring yourself to how to, to a, uh, a Seymour Quast or to a Milton Glaser or, uh, or a standard that other people have achieved. You got to find some way to sit in the activity and mm-hmm. just live in the activity and be in the activity and be curious and enthusiastic about it and be perfectly fine with that. Because your voice will never be uh, Milton Glaser's voice, nor should it. Milton Glaser's voice was Milton Glaser's voice. It is right. not your job to channel the now passed away Milton Glaser, Milton Glaser through you. Your job is to find yourself. And you find that only by sitting in the activity and listening and learning about yourself rather than trying to Ouija board Milton Glaser out of yourself <laughs> so that you can perfectly be an art forger of Milton Glaser's work. Right. And that's, that's, that's what curiosity is about. You focus on the God of curiosity rather than the idol of Milton Glaser. Yeah. I love that. And I think one of the words that kind of, in my experience kind of ties in closely and I, you're like, like a wordsmith with this stuff. So I, I love just like throwing out a word and seeing where you go with it. Uh, you know, you talk about curiosity, but also I think enthusiasm is something for me that has been huge. And I, the, the semantics of these things get weird. A lot of them are kind of like synonyms for each other sort of thing. But like, I remember this experience, uh, as I mentioned before the show, I got to spend some time with Brian uh, this summer in uh, Cape Cod and just seeing his enthusiasm for architecture and, and, mm-hmm. and design and all, all other things. But we were talking about this, um, 
this uh, mid-century modern house, and we share that same love for that that style. I, I want to have like an Eames chair and an orange couch. Meet the Creatives is actually orange because I, I wanted to have like that sort of Mad Men-esque orange couch. Anyway, so Brian is talking about like his love for um, these this building, and he's telling me about this one particular house that he wanted to show me. So we're walking down the street, and this and the people are outside of the house, and they're talking. So he gets so excited when he sees it that he literally like runs onto their lawn essentially is like standing in like their shrubs and is like talking about like, do you know who built this house? And it's so funny because in, in my mind, I was like, oh my God, these people are going to be like, think like what's going on. But his enthusiasm was like so over the top about it that they ended up having this like really great kind of conversation. Like he was just, I love it. And it was built by this guy. And that was like that. And he was asking all these questions. And these people at first were like, who is this guy? But his enthusiasm transferred. And I actually thought about that as sort of like a, like a metaphor for life. It's like if you're really wildly enthusiastic about something and you're passionate about something, there's such a better chance of, of learning more about it and kind of like taking that, that deep dive. I just remember thinking to myself as that story, and I don't know if I'm going to leave this in there, but I just thought that was so cool to see, like just – like being passionate and being enthusiastic will really go a long way, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I think that's something worth digging into. So I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. Sorry, Brian, by the way, I'm, I'm done talking about you now. I don't you have, you don't have to be worried, it's okay. <laughs> I told you there'd truth. be a little fanboying at some point. I made it yeah, this yeah, far, yeah. I did 45 minutes in, I'm good. <laughs> um, there, there's a lot of truth to what you're saying, but I think it also needs to be um, put in its proper place. So. Mm -hmm we often hear the phrase, follow your passion. Mm -hmm. Follow your passion, you'll never work a day in your life. So the Hallmark <laughs> card goes. Yeah. Um, I actually think that's a load of crap mm -hmm. because your passion doesn't have to be monetizable. Just because you don't make money off your passion doesn't mean it's not a passion or it means you failed. Like you, you could love, um, you know, underwater basket weaving. I don't know. <laughs> Who cares if you get paid for it if you enjoy it? Yeah. Um, the other thing is, is if, if, if you have passion for it, you would have already been doing it. Mm -hmm. So I remember having a conversation with someone who had to do a career change uh, from the world of Broadway and dance simply because they, they you know, didn't want to dance anymore, had grown too old, their body was like kind of hurting and stuff. And this particular woman's passion was Broadway. Loved it. Loved dancing. Like all she ever did um, from the time that she was like four was dance. It was her identity. Um, she went to special schools for it. She immediately started dancing in ballets and broadways and stuff like, you know, at the age of 18 and stuff. And so for her to stop that was not just an end of a career. It was an end of an identity and the end of a passion. Um, and so she always asked the question of like, well, I want to do something, but I don't know what I'm going to be passionate about. And we had this long conversation about how, if that is the question that you're asking of the world, you're always going to get silence. Because if you're passionate about something, you would have already been doing it. And mm -hmm. she did. She did it about dance. And she never at once ever asked, am I passionate about dance? It was just like, she, she didn't need to ask a question. She just did it. It's where her, her the gravitation was. It's where the magnetism was. So when you find yourself in a place where you're not engaging in your passion as a career, I think the more important question again goes back to curiosity mm -hmm. because what curiosity says is, 
it says there's something that is exciting me on the edge or just beyond the edge of what I know. I can see it peeking over the horizon and I want to walk that way. And the most important thing is that not every curiosity that you have is going to endure. It's not going to lead to another curiosity and another curiosity and another curiosity, but some will. And that's the whole point of pursuing your curiosity is that the path to your path for your, to your new passion is laid in the breadcrumbs of curiosity. Damn. So, <laughs> so if you're looking for curi if you're looking for your passion, you will never see it because that's not, it's invisible. It's something that's felt. Right. But curiosity is a reaction to stimulus in the environment. And so if you see a TV show or if you see, if you hear something brought up in a conversation, you go to Wikipedia to look it up, or you see, you hear a song at Taco Bell playing, or you, you know, you come across an image on the internet and you're like, that's really cool. I want to know more about that. That's right. curiosity whispering in your ear to, to say, walk down this path and see where it goes. There's no promises that the path will go on forever. It's just the promise that there is a path in front of you to walk, taking you from where you are to a new place. And then you have to make another decision. Do I want to keep walking this path? Is there another path or is there another curiosity which I'm walking? And so usually when you're following your curiosity, you follow this kind of like drunkard's walk. You don't know where it's going until you, until you are where it is taking you. And right. then that's when you stumble into your passion because passion is a, is a rear view mirror language. Yeah. You only know you're passionate about something when you're passionate about it. Mm -hmm. It's not something preordained. So curiosity gets you into the passion. And then that language of I'm passionate is something to reflect back on this drunkard's walk journey and give meaning to all the different experiences you had along the way to lead you to where you are right now. And so when I had that conversation with this young woman, sort of like a light bulb switched on her head and all of a sudden she could take off pressure from herself of finding the exact right next step to take. Right. And it was like, no, let's just take a step. And actually, if I take this step and I, it's, it doesn't pan out, I can take another, a different step and I can go in a different direction. And rather than having to crunch and think about all this metaphysical, spiritual, personal stuff in my head, I can just, I can just react to things that incite curiosity in me and then pursue them um, in, in the short term or, or chase after them in the short term, like a white rabbit down a little hole. So that's, that's why again and again, I go back to this idea of the God of curiosity and why it is one of the most important gods for any creative soul or any person really to chase after. Leland, this has been so great. Uh, I really appreciated catching up with you. Uh, you're welcome back anytime you are. Uh, I'm, I know you probably think I say this to everyone, but you really are one of the most sought after guests on Meet the Creatives. Everyone has been asking for years, when is he coming back? Uh, I one time had, I forgot if it was like JKR or Turner Duckworth. Some, somebody was applying for a job at a, a, a established like branding agency. And they, there was a quote from the last podcast. A lot of people have said they've gotten great benefit from it was, um, I believe that value is not what you can do, but what you can make possible for other people. And somebody DM me one time and was like, Hey, like you should probably let Lee know that I just used that line in a job interview and I got the job and I, <laughs> I can't make that up. Like I was like, wow, that's like, that's so cool that people are kind of taking some of these, this verbiage and these semantics and, and using it in job interviews. That's, that shows that my, uh, my thesis is, is working if you will. So, um, Thank you for doing this. Uh, if people want to apply for jobs at Chobani or 
uh, or something like that, or they want to learn more about the company, what's a good spot to do that? Uh, and any final words in closing? The floor is yours. Uh, yeah, you know, if anybody's interested in, in chatting with Chobani, I mean, certainly you can send me a note on LinkedIn or you can actually go to our Chobani.com where we have our careers page and any any open positions are there. We actually can't open a position without posting it publicly. So that's that is the most up to date resource there is. And just as a as a final thank you to you, I know five years is a long time to be doing this. And it's a it's a, not only kudos to you for your enthusiasm, but I know you're, you're putting in a lot of good energy and a good knowledge into the universe for a lot of young aspiring designers who really value it. And I think back to myself when I was first trying to get into it, I had no uh, references like you or like this to turn to. It was all, I had to be all completely self-taught. So uh, I, I guess I would speak on behalf of all your audience and saying thank you for continuing to persevere and doing this. It's a, it's a, part of the greater good that you're putting into the world. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I also just want to show that people are, are you know, people like you are just a normal guy and conversations like this are possible. So I, on behalf of everybody else, I'd like to thank you for being here today. And uh, I'll let you go. I know you have a, a busy day. Um, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you.